0: And today we are with consultant psychiatrist Dr. Philip George discussing articles about mental health.
1: Our first article, this is pretty Mm. interesting because it actually says that negative thinking is linked to dementia later in life. So how does thinking negatively actually lead to dementia?
0: Well, you know, we actually have evidence that depression can be a predictor for dementia in later life. Now, depression, as you know, has a lot of negative thinking. But this new study actually links just negative thinking specifically. Mm. And it was, you know, a feature that was measured among 250 people over the age of 55 for over two years. And then they did special scans to show that the negative thinking was linked to more tau and better amyloid buildup. Now, these are two sort of protein deposits that are found, especially in uh, Alzheimer's dementia. Mm. and it was also linked with memory and cognitive problems. But is this true for the great population? Because, you know, that's a small sample size. It's only 350 people, and they were already at risk of developing Alzheimer's dementia. So, yeah, we, we still need more studies to try and identify whether it's just the negative thinking alone or if it's connected to something else. But, yeah, I think it's important for us to identify Are we then the glass half empty or the glass half full people sort of thing.
1: Yeah, but if we are a pessimist, the glass is always half empty and always Mm -hmm. thinking negatively, how can we sort of train our minds to not think so negatively so that we are not at risk for Alzheimer's or dementia?
0: We can be in control of our mind and our thinking. We can influence how we think about things as well. So he suggested cognitive therapy which is challenging the negative thoughts that we have about ourselves, about our future, about our environment, and finding evidence to show that it may not necessarily be true, and that we are maybe spending you know, too much effort and time just focusing on the negatives. I think it's about looking after our mental health. It's a public health issue that everybody needs to identify. What are their mental health needs? Mm. And we can train our minds then to become more positive, just like You go to the gym and do physical training to train your muscles to be more strong. The same thing we can do with our minds. 30 minutes a day of cognitive therapy, mindfulness, meditation, coupled with breathing or relaxation techniques and exercise. These can produce significant changes in a short period of time. In fact, in about two weeks if we regularly do this.
1: Does acknowledging that we constantly have negative thoughts help? to sort of change that.
0: Yeah, I mean- Some I people don't even realize
1: that they're they're pessimists. Yeah.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And sometimes it's others who actually point that out to them. So it's important to take on, you know, what others say about ourselves and our reaction to things and identify, is this something that I need to address in my own life? Or am I comfortable being this way? Because we, the evidence is showing and by being negative, actually increases our risk for other problems.
1: Now, next one. We've recently been inundated with news um, of drunk drivers causing harm and death to other road users. And authorities have actually proposed to ban alcohol until this whole matter is resolved. Now, from a psychiatrist's point of view, what is the best way to deal with this issue?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's... Uh, it's important to be careful not to have a knee-jerk reaction to this. It has been highlighted recently as a problem, but it's been there for a long time. And I think we need to identify the prime issue, which is really drink driving, not drinking. And so the main thing is really enforcement. People who drink drive, I'm sure when they go to other countries where the rules and regulations are so strict and penalties are heavy, they don't even think about doing it. So, you know, if there is strict and consistent enforcement, then people yield and start to follow. Mm. Now, it's similar to the no smoking rule that came in only just recently. Cafes, restaurants, and because enforcement was so good, it's actually become a norm. So I think similarly, if we have good enforcement, we can actually control this much better than saying the diabetes is on the rise, so we've got to stop selling sugar. Yeah. You know? It's That's a knee-jerk reaction thing.
1: So these people who drink and then drive, it's not like they are addicted to alcohol or, you know, the substance as a substance.
0: Yeah, so it can be a variety of things. I mean, of course, a lot of people who plan to go outing and get inebriated, they, they make a decision to drive. Mm. And that's during a period when they're not intoxicated. They made that decision prior to actually going, you know, to then get intoxicated. Mm. So, which means they were not under the influence. But once they do drink, then there is a risk of being disinhibited, uh, having poor judgment and decision-making. And so, even if they exceed the amounts that are legally accepted, they may make the wrong decision then. Mm. So, I think it's important that they understand and be educated that, you know, if they are planning to go, uh, go out on a night out or something that they look at alternative means of travel mm. and, you know, never considered this as an option. And I think that's what most countries have instilled in the pop, in the population. So it's something that we can also instill in people. It, it includes education and includes strict enforcement as well.
1: Let's move on to our next article. Let's talk about re-entry anxiety, Doctor. What is re-entry anxiety?
0: As we move on to the RMCO, which starts today, it's going to be something that some people will experience. In fact, it's already been identified in countries like France and Spain and Italy. And just like the period of lockdown of MCO, when we experience anxiety over being locked up and not being able to do the other things that we used to do, it's like an adjustment disorder. And here we're moving from you know the cozy comfort of our home, then now venturing outside to things that you know can provoke some stress. Some of the factors include that although the spread of COVID-19 is slowing, the virus is still out there. And so many people may be reluctant to you know, commute or mingle in crowds or be in their workspace with others. But we need to look at it in a different perspective as well. Some anxiety is actually good for us because it can help us to remember to maintain Physical distancing. Remember to avoid crowded and confined spaces, and to continue to do hand hygiene and wear protective gear. And most of the time, just like with the MCO, the initial anxiety or adjustment takes a while, and then we get accustomed and comfortable with it.
1: Now, doc, is it only anxiety about catching COVID nineteen or passing it on to others?
0: I think it's a combination of many things. I mean, uh, some may have risk factors themselves, you know, if you're off a certain age and above, if you have hypertension or diabetes and other risk factors that have been identified as, you know, increasing the risk of contracting the disease. If we already have past history of anxiety or other risk factors for anxiety, that can increase the risk for us as well. And then, of course, you know, moving from a comfort zone that we've built for ourselves into a new normal, that whole thing requires change. And I think that All all of these factors can, you know, trigger anxiety.
1: So what can we do to ease this re-entry anxiety?
0: The first thing is, again, go back to the same things that we employed when we were down in, you know, the MCO, how to control the anxiety there. Identify what is in our control and what is not. Maintain those things that we started up, you know, our daily exercise or mindfulness or meditation or yoga. Maintain them because our anxiety needs all these buffers. I think also re-enter slowly. And if we can discuss this, negotiate this with our employers, mm. and I think if it gets too overwhelming, then we need to maybe seek help, professional help. I think there's no embarrassment or shame in actually looking for help because it will definitely help us to get you know anxiety out of control and then give us a better quality of life.
1: Okay, let's move on to our next article, all about how physical health and mental health is correlated in that way. They're very closely intertwined. Why do people with mental health issues have a higher risk
0: of falling ill? Well, actually, it's a well-known fact that people with mental health problems have a higher risk of developing uh, medical problems. In fact, we did a study among patients of, of a heart uh, center and those who had heart disease, about 50% had high scores on depression scales. Mm. There was a thought that it could be a behavioral thing, that you know, people who have depression and anxiety tend to neglect you know, their healthy habits or their diet as well. All these things become secondary when they experience anxiety mm. and depression. And this then increases the risk for their medical problems but this is not the only factor and so this i this study actually identified that it could be also the elevated stress hormones you know the cortisol that our body secretes this is secreted especially during stress periods and in depression and anxiety there's a sustained release and you know cortisol in our body actually reduces our immune system mm. and it contributes to an inflammatory sort of condition in our mind and our body. And so that triggers off medical problems. So we've seen, in fact, in my practice, I see patients with depression, anxiety, developing eczema, skin disease, Mm -hmm. or hypertension, or diabetes. And we know from research that there is a very close link between untreated depression and diabetes and hypertension as well.
1: But like, which do we have to cure first then to lead a happy and healthy life? Should we cure the mental health issue or the physical health issue first?
0: Well, I think the important thing is to address both. And, uh, you know, from our study that we did with the patients with heart disease, it was identified that if we actually had a multidisciplinary team helping patients like this, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, on the same cardiology team, and then identifying mental health issues among them, they had better outcomes. Mm-hmm. They had less risk of repeat heart disease or heart attacks, and they had less morbidity uh, related to their you know, heart condition as well. You know? So I think it's always important to address both, and ideally you know, a holistic approach for all patients with these chronic lifestyle diseases is the best way. All
1: right. This is our final article. And this article actually says that the human (laughs) touch is good for our health. So the question here, doctor, is how does a touch help to improve our health?
0: Humans are basically social animals. And human connection is part of that important aspect of us being social. It's good for mental health hygiene. Uh, You know, the friendly touch the pat in the back, the handshake, the hug. Studies have actually shown that just doing this can lower our blood pressure and our heart rate in the light of a stressful task. So this touch actually first decreases the stress hormone cortisol, but can also stimulate the release of oxytocin, which is sometimes termed as the cuddle hormone. And oxytocin <laughs> promotes a feeling of devotion, trust and bonding. The area of the brain that's involved is the obitofrontal cortex, which is just above the eye. And this is the same area that gets stimulated by sweet taste. You know, so if you have a nice muffin, a good piece of chocolate. So it's like a reward and stimuli basically. And it seems to be evolutionary because it stems from our primary caregivers as infants. Babies deliver, the first thing they do is bring the baby straight to the mother's arms. And uh, so this is actually something that is innate in us. It helps physically by strengthening our immune system.
1: Wow, imagine a hug can make you feel healthier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but of course, I mean, In this time where we're all encouraged to maintain a physical distance from others, you know, we're not allowed to shake hands or hug our friends or family. What else can we do to sort of maintain that connection with others and also to help release the oxytocin?
0: Or petting a pet, you know, that can all be a good alternative. Don't have a pet, maybe you get one connecting via online platforms or family. Virtual dance parties actually uh, have been suggested to actually stimulate oxytocin release as well. Another factor that also stimulates the same love hormone is altruistic behavior. Acting selflessly towards others can actually promote the same reaction. And so being good and kind to our colleagues or those in distress will also trigger the same oxytocin secretion.